the National Archives podcast series, The First World War and the First World Cup, presented by Stephen Cooper. Um, first thing I always do, and this is a slight embarrassment, having just been introduced as the author of two books, is I put this up, I didn't write this. This is written by an Italian chap called Alberto Celotto. Uh, Alberto I've never met. Uh, he read my book and he decided to blog about it on a website called World War I uh, Bridges, which is actually a fascinating website. He's based in the northeast of Italy. Uh, and he's not particularly a rugby player, he just likes um, uh, books about uh, World War I. Uh, and he wrote this, he said, Forget about battles, weapons and strategies, focus on men, on their stories, and they will lead you to discover the undiscovered. And this is a classic example of what Alexander Pope called what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed. Um, this is exactly the sentiment I'd had in mind when writing the first book, this one, but I could never have said it as well as, rather annoyingly, a man who isn't even using English as his first language, um, you know, which is what the Continentals are so good at. Uh, but Alberto wrote that, and I asked permission to use it, and it is absolutely inspired. And it's something I do commend you, and I'm sure you will do, over the next three uh, years that we have left of this centenary, is that's, that's very much my mantra. Discover, focus on men on their stories. You know, who needs the weapons, the battles, the strategies? I was horrified when the centenary started. There were three books, no less, all with exactly the same title, The First World War and A Hundred Objects, and all written by distinguished academics and historians, but I can guarantee if you laid them out on the, on the floor, 87 of the objects in there would probably be the same, and actually, who cares? Because it's the stories of the men that are more significant. Um, and unlike some of these objects, the men, of course, have not survived, um, nor in many cases is their memory, because they died very young and didn't have children, so there were no children to, to hang on to the letters they may have sent home or any of the memorabilia about them. So in many ways, um, some of the men we talk about today would be utterly forgotten if they were not if you like, immortalised in books and, and written about. And I believe there's a Central American tribe that actually says if you, if you utter a man's name when he is dead, he comes alive again, if only for a while. So that's what I hope I've managed to do with some of my men. Both The, the book started not from a desire to write a book, but originally from a rugby tour with a bunch of 14-year-old kids, took them to France, played at Compiègne, where the armistice was signed in 1918. Compiègne had a very similar history to my club, Roslyn Park, uh, which, as I found, lost 109 out of 350 members in the First War, which is an astonishing uh, casualty count, or fatality count, in fact. Compiègne lost 58 out of 120 members. Uh, we played a game on Sunday morning, and a French officer turned up, because the French like a bit of a ceremony, and they turn up in full rig in KP, and, and the gist of what he said in French, uh, but it was translated for us, is that rugby and warfare share a common language. Mais enfin, ce n'est Ce n'est pas la même chose. Um, and I realised how right he was when I came back and, and was reading newspapers. And I, I give you this quote from uh, The Telegraph, 2013. Those of you interested in rugby may recall that uh, Stuart Lancaster, just after he'd taken over, took a very young, inexperienced team over to Dublin, uh, which still had Brian O'Driscoll in his pomp. And in dreadful weather, very unfancied, they came back having won 12-6. And Mick Cleary in the Telegraph wrote, he said, these are no mere kids who need the roar of a Twickenham crowd to encourage them to puff out chests. These are the guys for the trenches, steely and trustworthy. So 100 years later, you've got a journalist, uh, and a very good one. And you know, He was at school with me, and I know that Mick is a very good journalist. Um, and they easily lapse into this language. If you think, if any of you can remember Bill McLaren, 
who was a Royal Artillery gunner in the Second War. He used to refer to Gavin Hastings' booters like a mighty howitzer. Um, and all the language of sniping round, this sort of scrum, uh, torpedo kicks. Um, 1935, Wales against New Zealand. You know, the, 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 the Times reported an aerial bombardment. Uh, well, and we have that nowadays. You know, you know there's the aerial battles that go on on the pitch when the ball is pinged back and forth repeatedly as it was on Wednesday, on the Saturday night. So the language of warfare uh, and the language of rugby are indeed uh, united. And, and I, I, I began to wonder why this was, but I want to just try a little experiment, uh, which, which won't work for those of you who've heard me before, but for those who haven't. Um, I decided to write, having been inspired by the French officer, I decided to write a book. I knew it would be called The Final Whistle because it was about the men who did not hear the final whistle at the end of the war. So rather than have a terribly unoriginal title for a preface like preface, I decided to call it The First Blow. See, first blow, final whistle, get it? Um, and what I want to try and do is see whether my supposition that rugby and warfare share a common language is indeed true. So what I want you to do, please, is to close your eyes. I'm going to read you uh, the first blow. Uh, I want you to have in your mind's eye or your mind's ear uh, the language I'm using, and I want you to decide, is this the beginning of a rugby game or the beginning of a battle? Uh, I won't let you go to sleep, don't worry. When the time came for the whistle to blow, they were glad. The shrill note hung in the damp air, and in the moment's hesitation before they started, all time was suspended and every breath was held. The waiting was finally over, and all they had trained for now lay in front of them. Their great game was now about to kick off on this field, and their greatest hope was for victory. The captain looked along his line to the left and right and saw that his men were ready. They had all worked hard for this since training had begun. They were fit in wind and limb and eager to get stuck in. The mud on their boots, which they never could shake off, no longer felt so heavy. He had talked to them quietly, each man in his turn. No need for big words as each knew his job and what he had to do. The big men felt strong, relishing the scrimmage to come, their faces set and determined. The faster men were looking to stretch their legs and show their pace and attack. In their eyes he could see the excitement and the nervousness. No man on his team wanted to let the side down. If they had fears, this was the worst of them. Most of all, they were eager to take the fight to the opposition. This was their first taste of the game. The side they faced was unknown to them, although its reputation was fearsome. The captain raised his arm to signal readiness, to steady the impatient, and waited for the moment, his own heart battering so loud in his chest, he wondered that his men could not hear it. He placed the whistle to his lips and blew. There you go. Told you you wouldn't go to sleep. Um, I hope until the illusion was shattered by the realisation that it's the referee who blows the whistle in a game, not the captain, uh, that I carried that illusion at least for a while. So. Call of Duty 1914. Two illustrations here, illustrating the varying responses of two sports to the outbreak of war in August. Cartoon from Punch. have Mr Punch addressing a professional association footballer. Uh, what we nowadays call soccer, or just plain football. And Mr Punch, who on these occasions invariably speaks in the tones of Mr Churchill, says to the professional association player, no doubt you can make money in this field, my friend, but there is only one field where you can get honour. Uh, and because Punch wasn't very funny, they always had to explain their jokes in tiny little type at the bottom. And it says the Council of the Football Association proposed to carry out the full programme of the cup competition just as if the country did not need the services of all its athletes for the very serious business of war. Story behind that, football professional game, 
the football clubs were businesses who needed to keep the turnstiles clicking. Uh, and the players, um, they weren't on the squillions they're on nowadays, but nonetheless, they were professionals trying to earn enough uh, uh, to keep a, a crust on the family table. And they were legally contracted uh, for a year. So football carried on until 1915, indeed, only finally finished on April 23rd, the appropriately patriotic day, St George's Day, April 23rd, is when the football season finally finished by that point, by popular demands. Uh, uh, the crowds halved, uh, and football had a very, very bad name for itself. If you read the new book, there's quite a lot of acrimony heaped on footballers from, uh, from pulpit, from the press, from the signs of the brewing family like uh, Frederick Charrington, who accused footballers of being effeminate, um, and uh, so football, you know, very you know, poor response in the view of uh, the media and indeed you know, the establishment. Rugby, on the other hand, amateur game, um, not constrained by any form of professional playing contract. And this is a poster from just before December of 1914. Rugby union footballers are doing their duty. Over 90% have enlisted. And a little line from the Times there, every player who represented England last season has joined the colours. And indeed, they, uh, they had... And 26 of them would die during the war, and a 27th would die of flu uh, a week after the end of the war. But very much rugby players held up as glorious exemplars of the right stuff. And that has ramifications for the game afters, but that's not what I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, so the, the, the football's uh, resistance to join the war, well, there were some exceptions. Hart and Midlothian, famously, so 15 of them all joined up. But by March of 1915, only 122 of 1,800 registered professional footballers who actually joined the colours. And, you know, the propaganda um, it was, was ardent against them. This is a match, I think it was uh, up in Scotland, uh, and that is a football stadium. And, and part of the annoyance was not just the players, but it was the supporters. Yes, this is um, from, the, from the Times. There is apparently something about the professional football match spectator which makes a recruiting appeal a failure. At the Chelsea grounds, not a man was induced to join. At other football grounds, appeals were made and with equal ill success. This failure contrasts strongly with the wholesale volunteering which has distinguished the performers and the devotees of other forms of sport. Rugby union clubs, cricket elevens and rowing clubs throughout the kingdom have poured men into the ranks. The dismal story of Saturday's recruiting is relieved by one man who volunteered at the Woolwich Arsenal ground. And you can hear them currently chanting, one nil to the Arsenal. So it wasn't until 1915 against a background of... Huge casualties, not only Ypres, but also Gallipoli. This is a fantastic poster aimed squarely at uh, Scottish football supporters. Great international match, civilization versus barbarism, taking place at the Dardanelles now. And there were men from the 8th Cameronians, which is the 8th Scottish Rifles, um, um, who, who were, were literally, and a lot of them were sort of from a club called Glasgow Academicals, or Ackies. Um, they lost a huge amount of uh, players and Scottish internationals in, in Gallipoli while this poster was trying to encourage footballers to, to, to join up. The seventh Scottish Rifles is uh, playing for the Allies in the above match. They are, however, greatly in need of reserves. Um, so this is very much recruiting aimed squarely at the football fraternity. You may know, those of you as students of the First World War, that the Fatality rate. I'm not talking about casualties here because casualties is confusing. Casualties is wounded, prisoner, missing. Uh, but the fatalities, those who died, uh, roughly about 10% of all combatants. Uh, and we're talking British and Commonwealth here. I'm not, uh, I, you know, not worried about Russia and Germany because they, in many cases, Russia was outrageous. 
Officers, 19 to 20%. Uh, uh, the reason being is they, led f- they in- invariably did lead from the front. They're the guys who put their heads above the parapets. They're the ones who did the sentry rounds at night, got picked off by the snipers. German snipers were actually instructed to kill the guys with the fat legs um, because they felt that once the officers were gone, the, the British would be headless. Slight nonsense because everybody knows the British army is run by the NCOs. Um, but of the 888,246 men, and it is men, who are commemorated in the poppies in the moat, there is no way, of course, that you could work out how many of them played rugby. So there's no scientific study of rugby play. However, in my research, and this is anecdotal only, but it is consistently anecdotal, wherever I went in stories, uh, like my own club, 109 out of 350 at Rostin Park, in the photographs I came across a stunning statistic, what I call the fatal fraction this is 1914-15, this is Edinburgh Academy. These are schoolboys, 18-year-old, uh, before, in their last season, uh, before many of them would go off to war, and six of them were killed. This is Oxford's Blues in 1910, uh, a, a fair smattering of internationals in that team. Uh, five of them died. This is Glasgow Academicals, eight of them died. This is Emmanuel School, if you know it, in Battersea. That's the 1912-13 school team. Nine of them were killed. Uh, this is um, Aviron Bayonnet, uh, the French champions in 1912-13. That's the postcard of them. Seven of them were killed. Uh, this consistent fatal fraction of a third every time. This is the England-France game, the last international in April at uh, Colombe in Paris. Eleven of those 30 who took the field at the time uh, were killed, of which six were English, five were uh, French. Um, this, you know, there were no colour paintings in those days. This is a, um, a painting which you'll actually find if you are on um, shoulder-rubbing terms of Prince Harry on the way up to the Royal Box. Um, it's a huge painting, absolutely vast painting, done by a chap called Shane Record as a commemoration of the First World War. And you'll note that those who were killed have their roses greyed out. It's a nice artistic touch. But there again is the statistic. Rugby was very, very uh, ardent in its recruiting. It actually set about recruiting. The first act of war by rugby was on August the 5th, when Birkenhead Park gave over its clubhouse and ground to the military for whatever use they saw fit. Uh, And the chap who uh, instigated that was a chap called Percy Kendall, who had been captain of England in 1903, uh, who then promptly, having pushed that decision through committee, then went off and volunteered um, that afternoon. He rejoined a regiment he'd already uh, being part of and left. This was uh, Dublin, Lansdowne Road, and recruits for uh, D Company, 7th Royal Dublin Fusiliers. And there's a spooky old thing that happens in this book. D Company of a 7th um, uh, Battalion comes up over and over again as having a very strong rugby connection. It's, it is purely coincidental, but sometimes you wonder whether coincidence is really just that. But this is a chap called uh, Frank Browning who single-handedly raises a company of men um, from various rugby clubs, mainly Lansdowne, and there they all are gathered at Lansdowne Road. He sadly was killed himself. He was too old to fight on active service, but he was um, a volunteer, uh, the, the volunteer force in Dublin at the time of the Easter Rising, carrying a wooden rifle, which wouldn't shoot anything at all. It was just purely for drill purposes, uh, and was killed during the Easter Rising. Um, more actively, a uh, chap called Edgar Mobbs, um, who you may have heard of. He was England winger and captain for one game, and that's him just there. He famously was too old when Kitchener's first 100,000 call went out uh, to be an officer, so he enlisted as a private soldier. And because he was clearly management material, if like officer material, he, he went on through the ranks and uh, ended up as lieutenant colonel of that battalion, 7th North Hants, 
uh, of which he personally raised D Company, 7th North Hants, again, spooky. And they became known as Mob's Own, 246 men that he raised. And he was killed at the head of his battalion um, in 1917 on the first day of uh, the Third Battle of Ypres. Um, this is a marvellous result at the bottom, just the way it should have been. England 24, Wales nil. And uh, you know, this is, these were English players against Welsh players down at Shoreham Camp where they were um, doing their training. But Mobs himself went off with the Barbarians doing recruiting games, many of them very locally here at Old, um, Old Deer Park and uh, Richmond and such like. Um, this is another game that he did. This was his England-Scotland game. And in fact, there is the photo from that England-Wales game. But this is England-Scotland in January in Northampton. This is a cartoon of Mobs. He was famous for his handoff. So he's handing off the sort of, you know, the chaps with the pickle halves there. And, um, uh, you know, this is a very clearly, you know, we, we must have more men and still more men if we are to uh, crush the enemy, said Lord Kitchener. And there's an even scarier line inside that says, the Scottish Pipers will be in attendance and will play selections, which, you know, for those of you who are not Scots, is a truly frightening prospect. There's mobs in the Midlands touring side that went to France in 1913 before the war. Um, and there he is in uniform. So there's mobs there, you can see him there. This chap up here, very interesting, Tom Richards. TJ Richards, Rusty Richards, uh, an Australian. The only Australian to have played both for Australia and the British Lions. And there he is. Um, he was f one of the first onto the beach at Gallipoli on April 25th uh, at what is now known as Anzac Cove. He was a stretcher bearer at the time. Uh, he even managed to take seven photographs as he was going ashore. Um, they're very dramatic for what they are. They're not great photos, but for what they are and the conditions under which they're taken, quite dramatic. He also kept an astonishingly good and articulate diary, which I do commend you to read. Um, throughout the war, all the selections in here. But he cropped up all over the place and, and seemed, frankly, between 1915 and 16 to do very little other um, than play rugby behind the front and used to bump into people he played for, you know, a, a Welshman like Johnny Williams. But he had an extraordinary career. He, he played sort of, uh, I mean, I, sometimes I get the sequence wrong. He was Australian. He went to South Africa to work. He's, he was a miner. Uh, his father was a miner. Um, while he was in South Africa, uh, he heard that let's get this right, that the South Africans were going to England to tour in 1906, Springboks. So he got in a boat, went all the way to England, got off the boat in Bristol, joined Bristol Rugby Club and was selected for Gloucestershire and ended up playing against the Springboks. They were rather surprised to see him. They hadn't selected him for the Springboks because he hadn't been living there long enough, so he didn't qualify in residency. He then sort of went back to Australia because he'd heard that the Australians were going to tour uh, in 1908 and he played rugby in Australia, got selected for the, the Wallabies, uh, came over, um, did the tour, won an Olympic gold medal, as you do, because you know, Australia won the Olympic final that year against Cornwall. And then he went to, back to South Africa as a miner again. Um, and in 1910, the British Lions came. British Lions were, were as injury-ravaged as the current Welsh team, and they needed some replacements. So all of a sudden, there's a bloke who used to play for Bristol. We'll have him. So he was a British Lion in South Africa, you know, on, on the virtue of having played for Bristol. So uh, extraordinary player. Real troubadour. In 1913, after this tour was over, he hitchhiked to, um, to Biarritz, where he picked up a few games for Biarritz and taught the French how to surf. Um, so, amazing, amazing man. Um, three captains. Um, this is the Liverpool team, the team that so Liverpool tell me are the real Liverpool football club, as opposed to those blokes who play with a round ball in red. Um, three guys here, all captains of their country. Freddie Turner is the captain of the club at that time. He's the chap on the right. Captain of Scotland, uh, uh, Poulton Palmer, Ronnie Poulton Palmer, who's this chap here, 
uh, with a receding hairline there, and a chap called Dickie Lloyd, who's captain of Ireland. Extraordinary that one club, um, and particularly a club in, in what is not known as a rugby stronghold, but in those days was, um, and Liverpool itself as a, as a town was economically booming in those days, uh, and really sadly since then has gone rather downhill, although it's now resurgent. But six of those guys died, so again, that fatal fraction. And a, 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 a Pukins, you remember I talked about Percy Dale Kendall, known as Toggy. Um, he was killed um, in pretty much the same place and buried in the same churchyard at Kemmel near Ypres as Freddie Turner, and there they are. Those are not gravestones. They don't show graves. These are memorial headstones, and they have on them, their glory shall not be blotted out, which is Kipling's phrase for those bodies who were buried but those bodies who could not be found. They were buried in the, in the churchyard. Uh, the churchyard became a battleground. The, the bodies and the churchyard were destroyed, and those two stones were put up there as memorial stones, and it's, to me, hugely fitting. You have an England captain next to a Scotland captain. Um, so still shoulder to shoulder, even in death. Uh, the tremendous Mr Todd, British Lion, 1896 in South Africa, came back, um, got two caps for England then, and this is very, very weird. He then went back out to South Africa to fight the Boer War, uh, wounded twice as a result of which never played rugby again. That's his tour photograph from the, um, from the British Lions Tour, or British Isles Tour, as it's called in those days. There weren't the Lions till the 1930s. As you can see, better class of tourists in those days, you know, sort of proper wing collar and, sort of, and um, none of these sort of shirts and things they have nowadays. Um, he wrote a letter to his captain at Cambridge, Frank Mitchell, which is sadly lost, but it's mentioned uh, by a chap called um, E.H.D. Sewell, in, in, a, in an obituary of him, uh, of having met a bunch of rugby players at the front. Given the sort of rigid caste system in the British Army, um, they didn't tend to mix regiments and ranks. That is a mixture of regiments and ranks. As you can see, there's a jock on the right. That, there's uh, Alec there. That can only have been that meeting of those guys. This was given to me by a relative, and it can only have been that meeting of rugby players. Uh, but unfortunately, I'm, I'm not good enough on face recognition to work out who they all are. I spent hours poring over rugby team photographs. I might be able to work it out. Again, if you're a writer, you can research in archives like this, on the internet, in books. There is no substitute for going there. There is his grave in Popperinga Military Cemetery. And bear in mind, he's an England rugby player, white shirt, red rose. There is a white Portland headstone and a red rose growing in front of it. I don't think the Belgians realised they were doing that. But nonetheless, it's a nice piece of serendipity. This is him two days before he was actually shot at Hill 60. He was home on leave in Ascot. This is a, um, a clock. If those of you know uh, London Bridge, head south over London Bridge, you will still find that clock facing you. It is the headquarters, or it was the headquarters, of Finland and Mackie Todd, of which he was a member of the family. He was company secretary. It is still, by the spirit of place which prevails today, um, a wine merchant. It's a branch of Odbins. And that clock stopped at 11.47, sometime in the 1960s. Now, I like to think it stopped because it was 50 years after a telegram was delivered there in 1915 uh, announcing his death. And it was delivered there because his brother, James, who's chairman of the company, he'd elected him as next of kin so his wife didn't have to get that awful on the door that says your husband's died. So his, his brother was, was delegated to break the news to Alice, his wife, if the worst happened. That clock stopped 11.47. Um, it's a lovely story. It's in the book. You can read it. Um, until about six months after publication, I was riding past on my Vespa, looked up, and the clock said 2.30, to which I used a, a very loud Anglo-Saxon word, because um, uh, I'm aware this may be being recorded. Um, and I emailed the branch of Odbin and said, what happened? He said, ah, that would be Boris. 
a glorious leader who has an office right by there in City Hall, um, was cycling along and looked up at the clock, thought he was on time for his meeting, got there, was hugely late and was furious in a way that only Boris can be. <laughs> um, so he had men from Smiths of Derby come down, who are the only people who can sort out these old clocks, and they got the workings going again. So thank you for Boris, ruining a great story. Rugby carried on at home, um, not clubs. There were no clubs. Clubs had been effectively, club rugby had been abolished on September the 5th of 1914 by order of the RFU. However, it was kept going for two reasons. One, um, schoolboys going from sixth form into uniform. They played rugby as a way of A, getting themselves fit, and B, teamwork, discipline, making decisions under pressure. It was deemed to be great training. But also you had guys coming back from the front in the other direction, either for R&R, rest and recreation, or for rehab if they were wounded or shell-shot. Some, however, and this team is one of them, this is the Army Service Corps uh, who played at Grove Park, which is not the one in Chiswick, it's the one in um, sort of Lewisham Way, south-east London. They had a almost you know, professional, it's what they did. You know, Army Service Corps is lo- what we now call logistics. They drove lorries around and moved things from one place to another. Uh, and they were full of uh, Northern Union rugby league players, um, internationals, and a very, very distinguished team, and, and took great pride in the fact they were almost completely unbeaten through the war. Uh, that is them playing the New Zealanders um, at uh, Richmond. It was also played at the front and beyond, but of course, no kit there. Um, you know, they played in what they stood up and fought in. So that, that's New Zealanders playing at uh, Fontaine. You can tell it's New Zealanders because the, the officer's got one of those funny Mount Taranaki hats on uh, that the New Zealand officers wore. The King's Cup. Um, in 1919, or at the armistice in 1918, you've got a, a slightly singular problem. You've got a, um, a large number, several million, of trained killers at loose in Europe. And they were trained killers. Think about it. You know, let's make no bones about this. Those men who had survived the war had an instinct for staying alive and killing. Um, and for the three months during the 100 Days campaign that finally finished off the war, they had become extremely adept uh, and the bloodlust was up. And if you read the book, you'll read some, um, some soldiers who were extremely dissatisfied because they were given orders on the 11th of uh, November not to pursue the Germans, not to cross the border, not to go into Germany. Many of them wanted revenge for what they'd had to go through for the last four years, and you know, the, the, the bloodlust was up. So you've got a bunch of very fit, very aggressive, well-armed men. What do you do to occupy their minds and bodies? You get them playing sport, and you get them playing rugby. Now, typically, the Australians were first to jump into this. They had a chap called Sid Middleton, um, who had been uh, uh, in that 1908 uh, Wallabies tour, and he organised uh, uh, rugby and sport Uh, in France, uh, on the Western Front, or behind the Western Front, uh, as it was. But then a bright spark at the War Office suggested that they have an Inter-Services and Dominions Championship in Britain, for the best of the teams, um, and King George, who's a great rugby fan, but also a great believer in political gestures made through sport. In 1914, he attended the February Valentine's Day England-Ireland game at Twickenham, very much as a gesture of conciliation towards Home Rule. Home Rule bill was going through Parliament. It was on its third reading. Uh, the Lords had rejected it twice. The Lords then rejected it a third time. However, under the Parliament Act, even if they reject something a third time, it goes into law. So Ireland would have had Home Rule, but for the fact the war then broke out and it was decided not to proceed with the bill because of the worry about possible civil war there and you don't want that going on when you've got a, a much bigger war across the Channel. So that was the uh, cup which the king donated, and it was played in a format that we would recognise today. Um, a round robin all the way around the country, from Inverleith in Scotland to Newport and Swansea, um, Leicester, 
Portsmouth. Um, very much how we would do it today. Contrast that to the football's first World Cup, which didn't happen until 11 years later, which was held um, by not many more teams. I think it was um, you know, no more than sort of 12 teams. They played sort of, you know, not many more games, um, and they played in one town only, which is Montevideo, in three different stadia, one of which only held 10,000 people. So um, that's a programme from the mother country against New Zealand, which is not the final. This is um, one of the round-robin games up in uh, Edinburgh. Um, a remarkable sort of piece of memorabilia price, one penny for the programme. You can't get that at Twickenham nowadays, I'll tell you. Um, you can't even get it at Ellen Rose, I found out the other day. Um, one of the teams, I won't focus on all of them, but this is um, the Australian team, some marvellous stories here. That's Sid Middleton I mentioned, uh, and you can see him in the 1908 team, he's got the scrum cap on. Um, he, Sid Middleton um, was the sort of the general impresario, if you like, of Australian sport and rugby in particular. I think he actually ended up going on the pitch for a couple of games during the King's Cup. Uh, but what's extraordinary about him, he was on the 1908 tour, he was sent off against Oxford University, uh, and it was an immortal shame to him. He was a medic during the war. He saw the most horrendous things. Again, there's some very, very gruesome descriptions of what he went through. Uh, but the thing and the shame that lived with him through his life uh, until his dying day, apparently, was the fact he'd been sent off, and, and he found it very difficult to recover from that stigma. It just shows how the values have, have changed. War was taken as one of those things you do, but being sent off on the rugby field was just immortal shame. Um, Danny Carroll. Uh, Danny Carroll was the youngest member of that Olympics winning team, uh, an Aussie who um, then toured America where, with the, the, the Wallabies in 1912, and he sort of jumped ship. He was a wallaby who stayed behind. Um, and he then ended up playing for the USA uh, in 1913, got his first American cap. And indeed, he perhaps wisely stayed in America because, of course, America didn't enter in the war until 1917. So he gave himself uh, a, you know, a, a much greater chance of surviving. But 1917, America did enter the war. He joined the US infantry, won the Distinguished Service Cross, got wounded twice, got a Purple Heart came through the war, and then, lo and behold, after the war, so if, you know, when the King's Cup uh, happened, he played for his old nation, Australia, for the AIF, and he's in that photograph there. He then, of course, went back to being American again, um, and actually played for America in the 1920 Olympics, and then coached them to the 1924 Olympics gold medal uh, against France, and it's that great pub quiz question, who are the reigning Olympic champions at rugby? It's the USA. Until next year, un unless there's the mother of all upsets at Rio. Um, a familiar story, I'm afraid, and this is, we've had 100 years of hurts now. Um, New Zealand at the top. This is actually the round-robin uh, league table. Um, New Zealand, to their ultimate chagrin, I imagine, were actually beaten by Australia 6-5. They, they would have carried the trophy off, um, no problem, but for their last game, which is um, uh, they lost against uh, Australia. And therefore, they did a playoff in New Zealand against some other country, whereby they, they, they made sure of it. Uh, the teams you'll see there... Bear in mind, this is called the Inter-Services and Dominion. So you've got Canada, South Africa, um, Australia, and New Zealand. Originally, the Army, Navy, and Air Force were supposed to have their own teams. Navy couldn't get a team out. So the Army decided, for reasons I'm not entirely sure of, to call themselves the mother country, um, although I think it was laden with a lot of symbolism. You know, it was all, this is all about, you know, the reason why King George was very interested in this is because it was an attempt to say, listen, the empire has survived, we must keep it together. But you'll find one of the funny things in the program, um, programs and mentions this, is quite often it's abbreviated either M country or Mother C. Uh, and you can imagine how the, those abbreviations would have been used in the front row back in those days. Um, I mean, again, these were all soldiers who knew the, uh, the swearing thesaurus backwards. So um, 
but um, uh, that, that's who the mother country is. Um, so New Zealand um, you know, played a playoff at Twickenham against the mother country, and then, um, so we didn't cause a major uh, diplomatic incident, they invited the French over to play a final game also at Twickenham, which New Zealand beat them as well, 23, and um, that was the end of the King's Cup. They received the King's Cup prior to the French game. I mean, the French were left under no illusion that this was anything other than a massive imperial house party because the cup was presented before the French game and the French then played this sort of um, coda afterwards, if you like. But then, you know, bless them, the New Zealanders then went on tour through France, um, played three or four games in France, and then went to South Africa. A very controversial first tour of South Africa and the two, well, one Maori and one chap with West Indian parentage were not allowed off the boat. Um, and from that began the whole story of apartheid and, and the virulence with which New Zealanders felt the whole apartheid. You remember the riots in the 1960s. You know, New Zealand very highly principled about the whole thing, um, but it all started from then. Um, this is the All Black Secret. Um, this is actually from 1905. You know, the All Blacks, as in many things, you know, trailblazed and pioneered the business of commercial endorsement, and they chose... On that particular tour, the Originals tour, this is an illustration of um, England against New Zealand at Crystal Palace, but they endorsed the Jason unshrinkable wool underwear, and every member of the team has signed the ad at the bottom, apart from one chap who'd broken his collarbone and <laughs> couldn't hold a pen. But, uh, say, David Beckham's doing nothing new in advertising underwear, so the New Zealanders were there first. Uh, this is a sadness to me, because there's a story behind this which has turned out not to be, uh, unfortunately, as... as fully true as it should be. This is a whistle. You'll see a date on there, 1905. Gil Evans was the chap who uh, refereed uh, the England-New Zealand game in 1905. Um, however, this whistle, which is a solid silver, or sterling silver whistle, was given to him, not from that game, this isn't the whistle he used, it was presented to him by Cardiff Rugby Club after he had successfully whistled Cardiff against uh, the, the Springboks the Aussies, sorry, the, the New Zealanders, the Springboks, and the Aussies, 1905, 6, and 8. Uh, and Cardiff gave him that whistle as a commemoration. Uh, he then gave it to another Welshman called Albert Freethy, who used it to referee um, the Olympic final in 1924, and then used it for the next time New Zealand came to England in 1925, and that was the, re the whistle that was blown to send off the first player, Cyril Brownlee, uh, a dastardly New Zealander, sent off um, in, in that 1925 match. Of course, they only need 14 men to beat us, so they still went on and beat us 17-11, I think. But that whistle was then used in 1987 to kick off the first modern Rugby World Cup um, by the referee who kicked that off, and indeed at every World Cup since until this one. Well, I'm afraid that the demon dollar, um, in the shape of the, you know, the, the, the Heineken dollar, uh, decided that they wished to... There's, a, there's another legend attached to this, in that 1925, the referee, neither the referee or the captain had a coin to toss to decide which, which end they'd start. So a chap came out from the crowd and gave him a florin, which they tossed, and, um, and he was so delighted with the result, he was a New Zealander, the guy in the crowd, that he had the thing embossed with the, the rose and sort of the fern on either side. And that also was used um, to, as the coin toss for, the, for all the games uh, in the Rugby World Cup until Heineken decided they wanted to sponsor the coin toss. Uh, and as a result, neither that whistle nor that coin have been used. And I think it's a, a flagrant, uh, a terrible thing by uh, the ILB or World Rugby to ignore traditions like that, because I think the values enshrined in that whistle are the thing that make our game very different. And the moment we start espousing 
a dollar for the sake of it, the more we're going to become football very soon if we're not careful. So boo to World Rugby and Brett Gosper. Uh, that's the book. Um, after the final whistle, the first Rugby World Cup and the First World War, it was a first Rugby World Cup played in 1919 by teams of soldiers. I put it to you that it was very much a pioneering World Cup 11 years before football had its own and many, many years before rugby finally came up with the idea of having another one. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 1st of October 2015 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.